This is MC Fireside Chats, a weekly show devoted to the outdoor hospitality industry, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. You'll hear from special guests that focus on topics to help your business succeed, all backed by Modern Campground, the most innovative news source in the industry. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of MC Fireside Chats. My name is Brian Searle with Insider Perks, here as always with Kara Sismadia from the Canadian Camping and RV Council. We're super excited to bring you another RV industry outdoor recreation focused episode as we do the fourth week of every single month. As a reminder, we're available on a podcast for you guys who want to listen in later Google, Apple, all those kinds of things. It's actually updated, Kara. I finally did it finally made time to do that so all those new episodes are available to download there as well as on mcfiresidechats.com moderncampground.com as well uh, and then we're super excited to have a couple special guests with us today too we're going to talk about their rving adventures we've got rv love an intentional adventure i'm going to let them introduce themselves and talk a little bit about themselves so i don't know you want to start mark and julie tell us a little bit about yourselves just a brief bio and then we'll dive into those details of the 8500 epic mile road trip Hi, yes, we're Julie and Mark Bennett from RV Love, and if you are familiar with this, we sold our home in 2014 in Colorado, hit the road in an RV full-time for over six years, and we're now back in a home base here in Colorado and back to part-time RVing, but we've been sharing along the way as RV Love written a couple of books and just did all 50 states and just keep on revisiting them because there's so many awesome, awesome things to see. And we've been to Canada too, several states in Canada, but not uh, provinces, but haven't been to all of them yet. We'll get there, I'm sure. Ben and Michelle? Tell us about intentional adventure. First, I have to say, Julie, your Colorado accent is amazing. <laughs> I've been a bit working on it. Tell you're a native. That's the most. <laughs> but hey, we are uh, Ben and Michelle, intentional adventure. We uh, sold all of our stuff and decided to flee from the law, and RV living was the way to go. <laughs> they haven't caught us yet. But no, we decided we wanted a different life. So we sold our stuff, bought an RV about, what, four years ago? Are we on year four or year five? I forget. We're in year five. We're in year five. Uh, and we have two kids, Eli and Lacey, who are now 11 and 13. So it's a special time in life to be with them 24 hours a day. We're learning a lot right now. But no, we're loving it. We're um, just traveling the country and finally made it out west this year to California. So yeah, just enjoying the travel life. Awesome. Awesome. Before we get into your deep into both of your stories from RV Love and Intentional Adventure, Phil and Shane are here with us always. Phil from the RVDA, RV Dealers Association of America, Shane from the Canadian Recreational Vehicle Association, and lots of other things as we were discussing prior to the show starting. And obviously, Kurt Rapanchek from National Parks Traveler. Gentlemen, before we dive into these two couples' stories, uh, and we're obviously going to touch on the RV industry and outdoor rec later, is there anything pressing, breaking, that you really feel is important that we definitely need to discuss on the show that has come across your desk recently? Brian, I got a couple of things. Just this week, two uh, reports were released, one by Thor Industries and one by KOA, and they were somewhat related, and it's the hot topic of gas prices going into the Memorial Day weekend, and how's that going to impact travel and camping in particular? And I thought it was interesting because, and Shane probably can talk about this as well, both studies said people might take shorter trips, but they're certainly not going to forego their vacations. 
And there's a lot of buzz in the general press about gas prices. And is that going to stop people from traveling? These two studies certainly show that on the RV side and the camping side of the travel industry, that doesn't appear it's going to happen. Sure, there'll be a, a segment of people who take shorter trips, stay longer in one place, but they're going to continue to travel and enjoy one of the post, hopefully post-COVID summers of travel. And they both came out this week, and I, I just thought that was pretty interesting. I will say, and I'll admit I haven't had a chance to dive into this report as deeply as probably all of you have, but somebody slacked me the other day. It was actually Scott Foos, who is on our open discussion show the first week of, of every month. And he said, and again, I haven't had a chance to dive into this and verify it, but he said other uh, in the report, he was curious because they said other types of travel will feel the impact of the economy even more than camping with three in 10 campers taking fewer non-camping vacations, as I think you just pointed out, Phil. But then 30% of campers will take fewer camping trips, which is the same thing, the way he was reading it. And so he was curious how they broke down that data. And again, I didn't have a really chance to dive into that and see how they broke it down and compare it. But yeah, it's going to be, it's a fascinating, interesting time. We talked about inflation a little bit last week and how that's going to impact things. But I think people are definitely going camping, but their behavior is, is probably changing. Is that what you've seen, Phil, Shane? Yeah, yeah and I, it's ironic. I was just on a couple interviews. I was on a radio interview uh, Friday and then a TV interview yesterday. Both both reaching out to to talk about the uh, the impact of the gas prices, and they noticed that it was Canadian RV and Camping Week, so they reached out. And I I saw those reports, Phil, and and I was down at the industry breakfast and listened to Toby uh, speak a couple weeks ago, and it was interesting. I, my take on it is is we're still a little early in the game. It's nice that every everybody's seeing that or forecasting that. Hopefully. That is a good, but as we get later on this year, let's hope that it's still, it's still looking that way. It's a lot of things hitting us at, at once, but it's certainly encouraging so far that a lot of people are going out there camping. Brian, I think this is something definitely to watch. Just this morning, I was talking to some colleagues and in California, of course, uh, highest gas prices in the United States, $6, maybe higher than $6. And somebody was just in Yosemite National Park. And they thought that the visitation was down and whether it was directly related to the, the gas prices or not, I don't know. But I know if I had to pay $6 a gallon for a, a rig that got 10 or 12 miles uh, to the gallon, I'd rethink my plans for the summer. And it, it's still not. I want to make sure that we, and we're not going to obviously dive into inflation. We talked about that last week, but I just want to make sure we preface that by saying, yes, it's gas prices. But I think the conversation is too focused on gas prices. I read a report yesterday on CNBC that said electricity bills for people are up 40% year over year. So it's everything. It's the tomato that costs double that it did before, plus your electricity, plus your gas, plus everything else. That's going to be interesting. But anyway. It really is. And it's going to be interesting to see how the concessionaires in the national parks deal with it because they've got increased prices and they might have labor um, issues with not enough, not enough help. I think it's going to be an expensive summer. One of the things that uh, is happening up here in Canada is the airports, uh, the lineups are brutal. There was a picture of, of luggage outside one of the uh, terminals and there were hundreds of empty suitcases because it's, it, it was so disoriented for arrivals. When the RV industry is faced with, again, the airline industry going, what they're going through, we're looking a, a lot better as far as a, a motor vacation right now than having to walk through an airport or getting there four or five hours before their flight, which is crazy. Let's dive into some of these stories. Uh, and Mark and Julie, please, if you have, we'll start with you guys, but if you have anything you want to contribute here to the discussion of how maybe it's in, 
impacting you guys as RV consumers, feel free to jump in there. But otherwise, feel free to, I'd love to hear about a little bit about your story, your trip, your 8,500 miles. That's a lot of miles. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah, actually calculated, it's over, seven, over 13,700 kilometers. <laughs> For the Canadian wow. market. The Canadian market, yeah. But yeah, so it obviously didn't slow down our travels too much. Of course, the fuel prices came up in the middle of our trip, but uh, we know in our audience and our followers, they've, some of them have said that it's impacting them with the fuel prices and the other economic changes in prices. But I think that in general, what's really great about RVing and especially for full-time RVers is that so many of your expenses are variable. If you, if your fuel prices go up, you can travel slower and less distance, stay longer, stay, use campground memberships that allow you to stay places longer or a lower cost. So there's a, a lot of variables that you can work. Whereas in regular lifestyle, there's more fixed costs. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things I think is really. Yeah. That's what we found when we sold our home back in 2014 is, is instead of two thirds fixed and one third variable expenses, it flipped and two thirds were variable and one third was fixed. And what was interesting about that is if you do get hit with things that are out of our control, ultimately higher fuel prices, rising campground fees, we're all seeing as well on top of fuel prices. Even if you get hit with an unexpected and expensive repair on your RV. Uh, which we've certainly had, and it's just, you know what, we're going to pull up for a while and we're just going to slow down the travel pace. And I think you can quickly recover from that, but everyone's definitely feeling what's going on. I think we timed our trip really well. We just, for those uh, that are watching, we were full-time for a, six, a bit over six years and almost two years ago now we did switch gears to part-time RVing. We now have a Colorado home base again, and we left in early December and left for Colorado to the Keys. And it was supposed to be a 5,000 mile, two month road trip. But then we kept looking at the weather and thinking, we don't have to go back. Oh, like, it's cold. It's snowy. We got to take the dog out. And we were having a great time in Florida. Got to visit some fantastic new parks for the first time in South Carolina as well. And we ended up coming back to Colorado. We did a diversion via Arizona and California because they're on the way. That's how we ended up doing 8,500 miles in three and a half months. And I think what's interesting about that for us, and we, we just did a big report about this on our website, it was a massive blog post, but lots of information in there is that in our full-time RV life, we averaged about nine to 10,000 miles a year. So we did almost as many miles in three and a half months as we would normally do in a year of full-time, because it's full-time, you're just going in one direction. You don't have to go there and back. Right. Go there and then to the next there. You don't go always, you don't have to keep coming back. And so that was a big part of the mileage for sure. And I, I think that speaking to fuel prices and Bill might have some more input on this too, from the RV sales perspective is that what's going on now, I think people are always mindful of what is the fuel economy on your RV, but maybe more top of mind now, we were in a big class A for six years. We had two class A's and they're like average, what, about seven or eight, miles, seven or eight yeah. miles per gallon, which sounds scary, but remember we're not using those for exploring and errands. We have a tow vehicle for that. So the average across you know, both vehicles, we ended up finding that our average fuel economy was about 15 miles yeah, per gallon. When you're towing a car that can get 25 or 30 miles per gallon and you're driving it more than the RV, that it makes it quick to average that out. And then on this trip, we used a class C on a Mercedes chassis and we got close to 15 miles per gallon on that. 14. And diesel's more expensive than gas. I think it's like $8 right in now. California for diesel. So there's a few things for people to think about. There's just a lot of variables in there. So tell us about your long trip. Obviously you told us where you went, but some of, what, what were some of the highlights, some of the exciting things or parks or campgrounds you saw or along the way? 
Well, we spent two weeks in the Florida Keys. I think yeah, which was, that was definitely exciting because we've been trying to get into a certain park that we can get into discounted for many years. And we finally got that reservation. Plus, we had a lot of people saying, hey, come down to the Tampa RV show. Oh, mm-hmm. Come down and see us. We're, we had a lot of friends and family coming down into Florida. So we wanted to go see them. So that was a lot of what drove us down there. And then we ended up spending about two thirds of the time. But the Keys was definitely a highlight. Just cruise around in the e-bikes and it's, you know, it's yeah. 80 degrees in the day and 75 at night. And it's just, you just, it's funny because when you're coming from Colorado, you have to keep an eye on what the weather is when you're getting out of the house. But down there, you're like 24 hours a day, I'm going wearing shorts and a t-shirt. That doesn't. <laughs> there were a few cold snaps though. There were a few cold snaps yeah. we had. It's, uh, we did get some gr- so that was our first time uh, staying. We stayed at a, a park called Sunshine Key RV Resort, which we'd visited before when friends were staying there. But as Mark said, it's the first time we're able to secure a reservation because we've got a camping membership that allows us to stay there for a very low nightly fee. So that was more than paid for itself. And then we discovered a new campground that some of you might have heard of. I wouldn't even call it a campground, actually. I'd call it an RV resort. Um, if you haven't heard of it, you want to check it out at some Camp Margaritaville in Auburndale. We'd never heard of Auburndale before, but it's between Orlando and Tampa. And uh, what was great about that, and, and this is actually one of the tips that we share with people too, and I think it's so easy for people to look at the cost of a campground and, and be worried about the nightly rate, but this place has so much going on. You don't need to go anywhere else. Like you're 40 minutes from Disney, but you don't need to go, was it 40 minutes, an hour, I think, to Disney. We didn't go to Disney. When there's a lot going on in the campground, it's in a resort with a lot of great attractions and amenities where you don't have to leave. I think that's a great way of looking at what value you're getting from a nightly rate at an RV park because you don't have to spend money on gas or go somewhere else and pay for an entry fee to get your entertainment elsewhere. And but that was a fantastic RV resort and it's part of the camp, the Margaritaville family, but this is like a, it's actually family run campground and it's beautiful. And we had a great time there. But where else did we go? We went to a motor coach resort in South Carolina and motor coach resorts only allow class A's in. But this one was a little unusual in that it did allow in class C's of a minimum 25 feet. So we just squeaked in and that was lovely. Hilton Head Island Motor Coach Resorts. I think those two stays were actually probably the majority of our campground spend on the whole trip. The rest of the rest of the stays were were either very low or even no nightly fee, depending on. Some because of the smaller rig, we, we, as we mentioned, we previously traveled with big class A's towing a car and this trip we had a small class C with electric bikes. And so it was a much more nimble rig. So it was actually really fun to have that different travel experience, but it also made it really easy to stay, do driveway surfing or harvest house or other simple or boondocking in smaller spaces. You can just have a lot more flexibility with that small rig, which was. And even just securing campsites, because I know a lot of, somebody commented in one of our videos the other week said, all campgrounds are booked out three years in advance. Well, that's not true. I would say in the popular places like Florida in the winter, many of them might be booked out a year or two in advance, I'm sure. But right now, a lot of people are making changes or cancellations to their travel plans. But what kind of rig do you have? And I'll be interested to hear from um, Michelle and Ben of their experience because they've got a big fifth wheel and a truck. And with this little 25-foot motorhome, I think we were able to get a lot of last-minute sites uh, because we were so small. Whereas if we had a big rig, I don't think we could have achieved that as easily. Let's pivot over to Ben and Michelle from uh, Intentional Adventure. Why don't you guys tell us a little bit about Intentional Adventure? I know you introduced yourself briefly and then some of the things you've been up to lately. That'd be great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Michelle is really good at talking, but I do a lot of the talking, so I try to defer. She's happy, I'm happy. 
No, listen, we are really passionate about building family. We're passionate about homeschooling, about plant-based eating, and honestly, just choosing the life that you want to live instead of letting it be chosen for you. So when we decided to travel, I own a business back in Florida. You probably have never heard of a business that does this, but I rent chandeliers for events. So that helped fund what we do, but it's been, I've been doing that for oh, probably 10 years. And it's what I call a niche business, business. I ship chandeliers to Canada. I shipped them all over the world and all throughout the U.S. So it's a really cool business, but that brings a whole different level of stress because I consistently have to be connected with my team. I have business meetings. I have to make sure that I'm thinking through where we're going to be and do we have signal? Do we have internet? So there's a lot of challenges in this lifestyle, but I think to give a quick overview, we are doing this because we want our kids to be raised differently than the status quo. We want to experience a life that's completely different than what we were experiencing in the sticks and bricks life. And we're passionate about sharing that with other people, which is why we do have our channel and we share videos and all that, because we want people to consider something different and live an actual of memories. So there's the quick intro. <laughs> I don't know if that answers the questions. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I think it gives us a good idea of what you guys are, are all about. What are some adventures you've taken recently that kind of stick out in your mind, maybe the last year or so? We've been trying to get out to California since 2020 and everything changed and so many been part of this nomadic lifestyle. So you just have to be open to change because it's going to happen. So we finally made it out to California and that was our 48th state. We're on our fifth year of travel, but we finally made it to the 48th. So we'll eventually get to Alaska, Canada, hopefully. And Hawaii, but probably not with the RV. We actually have a 43-foot fifth wheel. So it is large. And to, to go back to what Julie was saying about finding campgrounds that will hold an RV this size is definitely a consideration. I do try to plan things out in advance if I really want a specific place because it is going to book up quickly. But we can find things usually even within a month to be able to fit in. No, we can't get into the national parks, not a lot of state parks, but every now and then we can find something cool like that, but we can find something. It's just might not be exactly where we want it to be. Flexibility so, is key. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm curious, you bring up some of the national parks and state parks, and obviously that's Kurt's domain far and away more so than any of us. But if you can't stay in the national parks and state parks, is there still a desire to see that? And then how do you adjust to that and compensate for, I want to see this national park, but I can't stay in it. Yeah. So we uh, actually prefer in our travels to visit national parks, state parks. We are very much outdoorsy people. We like to do hikes. We like to, we love the mountains, the rivers and lakes, and we love all these things. And yeah, we can't always camp inside of the park, but we are usually within 30 minutes to an hour away. So it is an easy enough trip. And I'm sure Mark and Julie will understand this. You stay in one spot and then you just travel around to visit what you can. But for us to drive an hour and a half to go see something of interest to us is not a big deal. I think that's so true because, you know, even in our regular lives, when we had our house before we hit the road, it was so funny to me that we had so many family and friends that lived in town and they'd always make comments, oh, you guys live so far away. It was like 30 minutes and yet we're at least our V lifestyle and we've had friends 
when we were doing our remodel project on our RV up in Oregon, we had some friends that were in Washington said, it's only six hours. We'll come, we're totally going to come down. And so I just think yeah, that's so different mm. than what you know, regular lifestyle is just the different perspective on what is far. And then part of it, of course, is that you're carrying your home with you so that when you drive six hours, well, you have your house, you don't have to go back. But I think that's a big factor in why, but I just, uh, when you made that comment, I just had to share that. I think that's one of the most fun things about the full-time market. And there are a lot of people would ask, but a lot of people think, especially in California, where you guys are in the state parks and national parks are much smaller and the rows are not as accommodating to the bigger rigs. And we hear people and they ask us, I want to go full-time and what size rig should I get? And you want to get the smallest possible rig and stay under 30 feet because I want to be able to get into the national parks. And our response to that is if you're going to full-time, you want to be a rig that you're going to be comfortable because you don't want to plan 90% of your life around only 10% of where you're going to stay. Yeah, because good. good luck getting a reservation in a national park. You <laughs> might have the rig, but if you can't get the reservation, you're not taking your rig. But there are many private campgrounds outside of every national park and state park within a 20, 30, 40, 50 mile radius. And the further out you go, obviously, the more affordable they become, the ones that are right in close to the national parks, obviously you charge a premium, but I think a lot of people get so focused on the national parks and you'll get to explore them in your tow vehicle, or if you're in a small BLC like we were in, then you can do it in that, but to have to be in camping inside the national parks to still really enjoy so much of what they have to offer. Absolutely. Yeah. Kurt, you want to weigh in a little bit? I'm just curious what you think the difference is for people. Like you're going on a road trip too, aren't you? Where are you going? Oh, I'm going to Iowa. (laughs) To see a a national park or for something else? I'm going for a a wedding, a family wedding, but along the way, I'm going to drive across Wyoming and uh, across Nebraska. And there's a couple of park sites in Nebraska I'm going to stop at. And on the way back, I'm going to stop at a couple in, in Kansas. A lot of folks look towards the big national parks, the Yosemites and the Yellowstones and the Rocky Mountains. And there's really a lot of smaller jewels out there that uh, people are unaware of or, or think they're not worth visiting. And I'm going to four of them that I've never been to before. So I'm really looking forward to that. Where are you going? Come along. I need a shotgun rider. <laughs> Maybe that's why. Like, where are you going? I need to know. It's only two ways. I'm open. The first site is uh, Scott's Bluff National Monument in Western Nebraska. And uh, from there, I'm going to head over to uh, Homestead National Monument of America that interprets the whole homesteading era of uh, the United States. On the way back, I'm going to hit uh, Tallgrass Prairie National Reserve, which is as a, the United States expanded. We ran over all the landscape. We turned it into farms. We tilled under the, uh, the Tallgrass Prairie and the, the Shortgrass Prairie. And this unit of the National Park Service preserves a segment of that Tallgrass Prairie. And along with it, you've got a nice little bison herd there that the Nature Conservancy helps maintain. And so I'm lo- looking forward to seeing what the landscape used to look like 150, 200 years ago with all the native species there. And then I'm going to start at uh, Fort Larned National Historic Site in Western Kentucky. And after the Civil War was over, uh, a lot of the troops were sent to the West, to the frontier, to, to battle the uh, Native American cultures, to force them out. And a sad part of our history, Fort Laramie National Historic Site in Eastern Wyoming is one of my favorite sites from that period, but unfortunately it's not as kept up. Uh, a lot of the buildings are gone now, but uh, Fort Larned supposedly is the, the most fort setting from that era. So I'm really looking forward to 
to visiting it and, and seeing what life was like there. Different chapters of America that not necessarily your sprawling panoramic uh, vista parks, but uh, important nonetheless. That's all. Awesome. Well, that's something great for like this, the other couple, when they're raising their kids, road schooling, that's one of the things that they can speak more to this, but I imagine that's one of the things that's great for them is to be able to have that immersive experience and be able to teach history through the national park systems and more hands-on. But yeah, I'd love for them to share more about that. Oh yeah. Homeschooling is a whole different world when you can travel to these places. It's phenomenal. The kids are able to just soak up so much. And you know how it is. You can only get so much from a book anyway. But same thing when you're on site, you can only get so much from the site. We tried to combine which give them some experience ahead of time and then experience there. And when they combine it, they just, they don't even know what they've got. It's funny how we talk about stuff and they're like, oh yeah, Mount Rushmore. We went there a few times and we walked up the mountain. But they just, their experiences are so bad that I think it'll be a while before they realize how, but Right now we're preparing to go to Alcatraz and Michelle just yesterday was reading a book about it and telling the story about it. So it just comes to life when you can combine homeschooling and traveling. It's an amazing experience and we love the result we, that we've got so far. Yeah, that's a big part of the National Park Service, uh, the education mission, the interpretive mission. And Brian, just recently, a couple months ago, the Travelers started a, a monthly webinar series and uh, our next Next webinar is coming up on June 6th, and we've got a ranger from Everglades National Park who directs our education program. And one of the fascinating things, there's actually two fascinating things. One is really fascinating, one is sad fascinating. But they bring in 20,000 school children a year to Everglades to introduce them to their backyard, this incredible national park. The, the sad fascinating thing is that she does not have a budget through the National Park Service, she depends on grants to maintain her program and the 11 employees. We talk about the National Parks and everybody tends to think that everything is wonderful with the National Park Service and the National Park System. And there's a lot of challenges out there in so many different areas that need to be addressed. Absolutely. I can agree with that. And certainly through funding through the federal government, it, is, it has been short and some recent federal legislation has passed. Great American Outdoors Act and some other funding that's coming through various pandemic relief efforts that is going to go into public lands. Because I think one of the things that I'm always surprised when I talk to, whether it's uh, fish and wildlife people, the Forest Service and National Park Service, is how understaffed they really are. You'll have a say U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service of hundreds of acres. I said, how many people are here? to help visitor services and protect the resources. And well, we have uh, one and a half FTEs and then we, the rest are made up of volunteers. And it's just, wow, what dedicated people to, to work like that. I think one of the things that we're coming out of the pandemic that we've seen is a bipartisan effort to put more funding behind our federal land agencies. and. I, it's going to take some time, but I think at least the funding is moving in the right direction. All of us that are part of outdoor recreation community need to support those efforts and support those people on the ground who are really, they're doing it out of love. Let's face it. They're not making a ton of money. They're doing it out of love for the resource and love for the people that, that use the resources like us. 
Yeah, I 100% agree. I, I was on the road before, well, during when I was starting my business, actually homeschooling too, Ben and Michelle. And so I understand that kind of learning methodology and how it benefits people. But yeah, the education that's available in the national park system and things like that is just, it's unmatched. It really is. And that, and whether that's you're staying in the national park, you're staying in a private park, whatever it may be, you can still go get that education and seek it out. So we were talking about Balloon Fiesta and Albuquerque has, has an amazing couple of historical sites there. It's a petroglyph, I think. It's been years since I've been there. Petroglyph National Monument and all kinds of really cool stuff. Has any of this impacted Shane? You're quiet over there. How does this, how does this work with Canadian national parks? Do you know it all or not the education necessarily, but if you, mm. you can't touch on that, if you want, but some of the funding and the governments and how that interacts with the RV industry. Uh, well, they, they keep on providing funding by the federal government, but as far as we're concerned, not in the right places. We want to see the development more campsites and at some of our national parks. But unfortunately, the, I don't know where the money goes. It, we keep on seeing in all the budgets that many millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars are set aside. But it just doesn't seem to, as far as we're concerned, get into the right places. Brian, this seems like a perfect segue to point out that... Uh, National Parks Traveler, although we are based in the U.S. and probably 90% of our coverage is on the U.S., we do have a Canadian editor for readers up north who want to stay on top of what's going on in the Canadian National Park System. And we, we do touch on some of those problems in terms of lacking funds or, or lacking uh, staff, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'll have to make it a point to try to read your website more often. You really should. Yeah. There's there's a list of 400 <laughs> things bookmarked in my browser. There, these are important. I should get to today, from no. four months ago. So, I'm working on it. But yeah, those, those, it's it's all so tied together, and that's what's so fascinating to me: the RV industry, outdoor rec education, our kids, how they're growing up, what they're you know seeing and learning and adapting to, and how they prefer to travel. And it's just it's all such a big huge circle. Uh, Carrie, you been camping recently. Didn't you go to the RVDA of Alberta's little education training event recently? RV Learning Weekend was, yeah, May 13th to the 15th. Unfortunately, I couldn't uh, stick around the way I wanted, but yeah, it was a really fabulous event. They had about 150 RV owners come out for the weekend and RVDA of Alberta hosts several seminars on from like basics up to advanced kind of RVing topics that attendees can register for. And then, of course, there's all the fun stuff, too. They've got parties and dances and things for the kids to do and all kinds of things, all at a really awesome resort here in Alberta, Old McDonald's Resort, right on Buffalo Lake. They've got a great little beach and, and spot. Their spot is really great for the kids. My kids love it. But, uh, yeah, overall, it's a, it's the first one we've been able to host in a couple of years, so it was really nice to have that in-person Literally hanging around the campfire opportunity again with RVers and RV dealers and RV techs and everybody all at one event like that. Really unique and fun. And, and I love to be part of RVDA of Alberta because of events like that one. It was really great. Yeah, I've never been a part of one of those things, but it seems like an interesting question. Ben and Michelle, Mark and Julia, maybe if you guys want to jump in or you guys both have large communities who follow you and I'm sure they run kind of the gamut from the people who are also full-time RVers to the people who are just getting into it, especially during the pandemic, who just maybe bought a rig and have questions. So what are the different types of comments that you hear from people both at the beginning and maybe not the end, but more advanced into their journeys? Hmm. I know that's a very broad question. I'm intentionally leaving. Let's start with the, let's start with the beginning. So yeah. for the people who are getting into the industry for the first time, what kind of questions do you see that are being asked of people like you who are 
clearly experts. One of the right experts. We've been doing it a while, but <laughs> I guess we know more than the people that are starting out, right? But, yeah. uh, but I think uh, one thing that we find is a lot of people, are, they're very focused on the rig. What's the right rig for them in trying to get that decision to be perfect. And it's very difficult to do that. I think a lot of people, it's great. There's so much content and so many other RBs sharing their experiences out there. As we've been doing since 2014, there's so many different kinds of RBs, the way they do it, the kinds of rigs they're in. I think it's easy for people to just say, well, I like that couple. I'm going to get what they got. Doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the right fit for you. But I think there's one thing I'd like for all you RBs to know is it's a really small percentage of people are going to nail their perfect rig that's going to last them for years on the first go. And sometimes it takes a little, you, you know, travel needs change. We've had two class A's and we loved those. And they were fantastic for full timing, but we're really loving this little class C we've been traveling in as well, just for a different kind of experience. We're in a different life stage now. We've, we've done all the 50 states, only 48 with the RB, but we've done a lot of things and now we're looking for different kinds of experiences. So I think people that are new, just to really keep in mind, there's a really high chance that you'll probably change rig within the first year or two. And to your other point, they seem to be sending a disproportional amount of time on the vehicle and, and not as much on how they'll use it and live the lifestyle and other factors that they need to consider. Like, like where they're, they all need repairs and maintenance. Where they're going to stay with it, where they're going to, they're part-time, where they're going to store, where they, all these other factors and all the other costs. And like, budgeting for everything, yeah. not just budgeting on the rig, because if you're not full-time, most people need to pay for storage. We all need to pay for repairs and maintenance, obviously gas and campgrounds. But I just think I would really, I know a lot of people jumped in in 2020 and 21 with COVID, a lot of what they called COVID campers, I think, and it's all very, very exciting. But I think the reality of RV ownership is also catching up with a lot of them. We're hearing about things like uh, camp reservation fatigue. I don't know if you've heard that term where people are just getting tired from what's becoming like a part-time job, just making your campground reservations. Because it's harder to find the reservations than it was. I don't want to sound like a Debbie Downer here. I just realized <laughs> that, that I think it's just really managing those expectations because people get so excited about the RV. We're going to go travel and have these adventures and go to parks and we're going to go kayaking and all of these great things. And it is all of those wonderful things. But I think by managing expectations of being aware of all of those other things to help balance that out so that it doesn't become overwhelming. And it sets them up better for long-term. So that, and that's what we really want to see is not people that jump in and then find it's these things are too much for me and then jump out again. We want, that's, that's why we create the content that we do to really help manage expectations so that people can understand what they're getting into, do their homework, do their research, do their, their budgets, and then keep doing this fees and years to come and budget in for that. You'll probably will change rig along the way. So it was probably a long answer to a short yeah. question. Let's talk about this year or two, cause I'm curious if Phil or Shane can weigh in on this from a dealership yeah, well, industry perspective. We had some discussion about this recently, and there's actually some data that was shared at the RV industry power breakfast that Shane attended and that I monitored from afar because I couldn't attend in person, but they were talking about the number of trade-in vehicles, uh, year, uh, 2019, 2020 and 2021. And it seems like from the initial data collection that those are hot higher. Okay. Mm -hmm. But what's unclear is why that's happening. Is it because as you've talked about 
they just bought a rig because that's what was on the dealer's lot. And now the availability on the total side is much better for the dealers. And they're moving on to a different unit that's more fitting for how they're going to use it. Or are they getting out? And that's the, that's what we need to do some more research on and find out. So that was definitely, it is definitely top of mind for the people in, on the business side of RVs, because for the long-term health of the industry, we want to retain all those COVID campers, if you will, and have them buy and buy again in the future for the health of the industry. We don't want them wanted done. Yeah. And I think a lot of people feel there was such a shortage from the summer of 2020 and then the supply chain issues and just the sheer demand of it, that I think a lot of people were just buying what they could get. Like, I, I mean, I don't know the numbers on it, obviously, but you would know better than us, but that's what we were hearing a lot of is I'm just going to grab this so I can get out of the house and, <laughs> and not be locked up. Yeah. And, and hopefully that's the reason, but I, I got a question, Mark and Julia, Ben and Michelle, there's a lot of, like Phil said, there's a lot of new people getting into this uh, industry and. I love what Alberta did with the RV learning weekend. We need more of that. Now, a new buyers, they, they buy these things and they don't know the components or what makes up an RV and how it even works. Do you think that there should be more education on maybe schematics? Okay, this is the plumbing system. This is the electric. This is where the heartbeat is. This is what could go wrong. Do you guys think that there should be more accessibility from either dealers, manufacturers, or suppliers on those things? I do believe there's an opportunity for more education on that and delivered in a format that's more favorable too. I was, with that said, I am happy that our newer RV has a better owner's manual than in the previous, but I also know that not everybody's like me and reads owner manuals, but I, but I do think there's a big opportunity for education and learning and whether that comes from manufacturers or from industry in general, wherever it comes from, I do think there's a huge opportunity for more education to help this long-term success of the RV industry because it, the more informed people are, because a lot of the things that go wrong in an RV are because of the people not knowing how to use it properly. So if they're not using the appliance properly and it break or maintaining it properly, it premature failure. And if they would have done it right, they would have not had to get the RV into the shop. And so there wouldn't be as much of an RV tech shortage if people knew more about how to maintain them, more how to take care of them and more how to do things themselves. And so I think empowering the RV population to do more themselves and to make better choices is, is very valuable. I, I think there's a big need for that. I do think this is where influencers come in because the reality is people don't read manuals. You could literally post every instruction in the RV with a sticky note and they would just go and remove them. Like people don't, they don't do research. They don't read instructions. They don't want to be told what to do, but then when it breaks, they want to complain. This is why I think the beauty of the influencer world has become necessary for stuff like this because people will watch TV, but they're not going to read a manual. I, I read the other day that most people with their iPhones, they, they know about 3% of what it can do. 3%, that's it. They do not use features. They don't go online. They don't watch YouTube. They just do whatever they can and they move forward. And iPhones don't even come with instruction manuals anymore. Because it's that... so intuitive and easy to use compared to an RV. The other key, I think, is in, in our industry, I think the RV industry has to become more intuitive. For instance, one of the silliest things that I have seen in almost every RV is where they, or fifth wheel, I should say, 
where they put light switches. There are simple things, but in my rig, and I love my rig. In fact, we are one of the, the few people that actually picked a rig that we have kept the entire time. Our most recent one, which was literally just an upgrade to the, the newest version of what we had originally. We have loved that rig, but the light switch for the living room is like behind a panel. The first light switch when you come in is turning a fan on. So there's little things that just make no sense, but probably made sense to the guy in the warehouse. So I think as an industry, if people are going to continue living in these, the industry is going to have to become a little bit more simplified and smarter and intuitive, as you mentioned, so that people don't have to read the manuals. And then I think they should continue working with influencers to pass along the important information to be educational in an entertainment format, because that seems to be where people are getting their information in those eight second TikToks that we have to do about turning your water heater on. Completely agree. Totally agree with you. Yeah. And, and we would, we've, we've been doing this for eight years now and we would love to see more collaboration, more partnership with other industry, with manufacturers, with companies, because then you exactly, and even articulated better than I could have, exactly what I was going to say before you, so I'm glad you did because that's what people are watching. And if you look at how many followers manufacturers have, most of them only have a fraction of what the RV content creators have. And that's, this is not an ego thing. It's just so much as that's what people are re relating to and understanding and enjoying. And it's the entertainment side of it. And to your point, Ben, we're like a couple of oldies that just started on TikTok recently. It's like really uh, against it, to be honest. I'm like, I have so many social media platforms to keep up with, but I had to face the reality. This is where the people are. This is one of the platform, Instagram, Facebook, of course, as well. YouTube, but that TikTok's really growing fast right now. And so we did a recent video that was born out of Mark reading our manual for the Winnebago on how to, how to sanitize the fresh water tank. And I think one of the creative, interesting challenges I'm, I'm finding by creating this short form content, which people are able to consume anywhere and everywhere, right? You're waiting in line to get your Starbucks or you're in the bathroom or you're doing, you can you can consume it very quickly and fit it into everything in your life, basically. And I think that's what people are doing. So if we turn this sanitizing your RV fresh water tank into a, I don't know, I don't know how long it was, maybe 30 second TikTok video. So there's a real creative challenge there on how to get the important information across in a way that kept people engaged and entertaining and fun, but they learned something and they saved it and kept it and shared it. And that's had 140,000 views in the last uh, less than a month, I think maybe two or three weeks. That's that, I don't know how many RV manufacturers, no offense to any of them, have got a RV fresh water, fresh water sanitation video that might have had that kind of response and engagement. So I think there's a great opportunity here for some more conversation and partnership around how can we work together? Because I think we all want the same thing. We all want to have better educated RVs out there so they have a better experience and they stay on the road and they keep enjoying this RV life. And they're not taking their RV into the shop to replace a fuse or flip the breaker because that is what's taking up a lot of the time and appointments at RV repair shops that are completely short-staffed and that's the whole challenge of the state of RV repairs. But to reduce that, something like 80% of RV repairs can be tackled by the RV owner with the right information and knowledge, but how to make it fun for them to learn. And that's why they're watching the videos and the social media, that's what they're doing is they're wanting to be entertained, but they actually do want to learn if it's done in a fun. That's the thing. It has to be fun and interesting. And I'm sure Shane and, and Phil probably want to weigh in on this because I mm. think it's a good idea what they think. I can't put words in their mouth, but you're right about the interesting and fun. And it doesn't matter the length. Like people will consume oh. the TikToks 30 seconds, 
but they'll sit down on Netflix and they'll binge watch a show for nine hours straight on the weekend because it's interesting. And so all these statistics to keep your videos two minutes or less, you just have to make them interesting. That's all you have to do. And people will watch you for an hour or 30 seconds or whatever it is, but they'll watch your message. And sometimes they watch two hours worth of eight second TikTok videos. Yeah, that too, yeah. Like I don't have time to watch a 30 minute YouTube video, but I'll watch three hours of TikTok videos. That's what, <laughs> this is a, I've been in marketing for 30 years. And so it's changed so much from my history. So it's, I'm really having to rewire my brain around how to deal with all this, but it's a fun creative challenge. Well, it sounds like you just need to have Mark read the manual. <laughs> Go ahead, Kara, were you going to say something? I'm sorry. No, it's all good. I was just laughing at, I just had that conversation with my 14 year old about three hours worth of TikTok videos. Like Phil, well, sorry, Kara, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, it's all good. I think it's so difficult to fit in valuable content in those short windows of time because there's so much to cover. And so you do have to be really creative. I'm, I'm still struggling to wrap my brain around establishing TikTok uh, channels for the, the association and their respective pages. And I, I tip my hat to you guys that, that take it on. Well, Benny and Michelle do a lot of humor in their channel. Yeah, they, they, they're, they're, they're one of the funny couples. You can work on our funny couple stuff. <laughs> it's going, yeah, I love it. Now, I don't want to get this conversation that we had going on lost here. And I'm sorry, Phil, I didn't mean to cut you off. We're just, I want to, I'm trying to swing it back. I hope the same place you are because Shane brought up this question. And I think we took it down a path that's even more interesting than maybe Shane intended. So go ahead. Oh, I, I intended this. Well, I was just going to say, I think that one of the things that we found is there is a, among some of the brands, especially you've got Forest River Winnebago for products. And the challenge is. We've had people attempt to make generic, here's how you RV videos. That only goes so far because people are very interested in the specific model and how that unit works versus some kind of a generic, it might be different on your rig, but this is, they want to see how does it work on a grand design? How does it work on a Keystone? How does it work on a Salem or whatever the model is specifically? And I think some of the manufacturers have made some strides in this area, but certainly I think partnering with influencers could help give people the specific knowledge for the problem they have at that specific time versus, you know, just a, here's a RV lifestyle video that tries to cover way too much things versus what the problem is right there at the campground that they're trying to address. And I think there is some good opportunity too there with the industry, to, to, with the campgrounds, because they're getting the new campers rolling up for the first time in the new RV, not knowing how to back it up, how to get it level, how to get it working. And so I think that falls on a lot of campground owners as well. We hear from our, our contacts in the industry there. So that's, I think, a great avenue for people to learn that. And we've got a lot of ideas around how this stuff, maybe this is a conversation <laughs> for another time because it would be long, but just how to get that information to people in a way. And I think the dealers feel, have a great opportunity there too, because people are looking to learn from the dealer. And a lot of dealers do provide some educational content out there, but I always wonder why, say, for example, RV insurance, why is there not a, a discount for those that are, have gone through a certain amount of RV education or something, or gone through certain courses, or maybe there's an incentive for, if a customer goes through a certain amount of 
educational content, they get some special something. I don't know, but I think there's a lot of possibilities there to, to explore for sure. But making it fun and easy to consume is uh, everyone's just overwhelmed. There's a lot of, there's a lot more content out there now than there was when we started, which is a big reason why we started sharing. But I think the other challenge that consumers have now is there's so much information out there. How do you sift through and know what's the good information? How do you know what's accurate? And how do you, there's a lot of <laughs> content out there. There have been some studies done. I understand that says that something like 60% of content out there is inaccurate and about 30% is downright dangerous. Don't quote me the source on that, but that's what I heard from some, somewhere in the industry. I don't know how true that is, but I think the consumer ends up trusting just who they like and who they follow and not necessarily, but I think that's everything, not just RV. You need to little, dig a little deeper to make sure you're getting good information. And I think that does come back to uh, the partnership with, with manufacturers because in theory, they would do their research to make sure that the influence they're, they're choosing is actually bringing up, you know, proper information. So that could help validate that influencer in the overall field, which I think would be really helpful for people to come in and say, okay, I'm a forest river person. And they say, yeah, check our page. We've got a couple of influencers that have information that's really helpful. Then that helps give them some not experts, but somebody who knows what they're doing and it's giving accurate information. So again, that partnership, I think is so important for new people coming in and for anybody who's trying to figure it out with these new RVs. Yeah, well said. Shane, you want to wrap it up with any comments based on what you heard? <laughs> no, it's a, this is a great conversation. It's funny um, how things have evolved. People want to learn, but they want to, uh, they have a short attention span, so they don't want to be entertained as well. And what, what a switch from, from before. Oh, this is great. And I wanted to learn your, I, I love talking to full-timers just to learn because there's so many things to learn. So it's been a real pleasure listening to you guys talk about the problems and what you feel that the industry needs uh, to do to help everybody out. Well, we appreciate you inviting us to be fun. This has been fun to chat with everyone and to really have enough time to delve into so many topics as we have so many interviews we do are really short and you just scratch the surface, but I love that we've been able to go deeper on some of these really important issues that impact all of us in all of these new RVs as well and dreamers. And we don't want them to be scared off by seeing all the bad stuff on the internet. We want them to get the good stuff too. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us on here. It's been amazing. Yeah, definitely. We got, we appreciate you guys all being here. Uh, we still got a couple minutes left. Is there anything else, Kurt, from your side, from national parks that we should be paying attention to? One thing I would be remiss if I didn't mention the other week, uh, the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee passed out some legislation to address outdoor recreation. It's called America's Outdoor Recreation Act of 2022. And one of the interesting aspects that the RV industry, no doubt, is interested in and watching, and Phil might be able to fill in some more blanks, is the legislation, if passed and signed into law by the president, it would allow public-private partnerships to modernize federally-owned campgrounds, resorts, cabins, and visitor centers on federal recreational lands and waters. That's going to be something to watch, both from the pro and the con side. I know the National Park campgrounds are last century design stuff and they can't handle a lot of these bigger rigs and whatnot, and they don't have all the amenities that folks want. So it'll be interesting to see as this legislation moves forward, what potential impacts it has, not just on national park campgrounds, 
but on, on federal landscapes, not just surrounding the national parks, but across the Bureau of Land Management, across the U.S. Forest Service, to see if we see more public-private partnerships to create bit bigger and better campgrounds for RVers and, and whatnot. Right. The, the issue for the concessionaires who maintain a lot of the campgrounds, not all, but a lot on federal lands is they need their businesses. So they need a return on investment. So they want to see what has gone on with the ski industry and the U.S. Forest Service, like Vail or Snowbird or some of the big ski resorts, they have longer leases so they can amortize their expenses over a longer period of time and be profitable. What the concessionaires have said is we don't have that kind of flexibility on park service land. It's a shorter window, 10, 10 years, 15 years. We would like to have a longer lease period so that we can put those investments in and amortize our expenses and make a, uh, a reasonable profit. So you know, that's where that's coming from. And if it works on for, for skiing, why couldn't it work for camping? I guess is one of the, one of the arguments there. The philosophical issue though is the national park service, the national park system is owned by the national, the public, the general public in the United States. Do we want to turn those into commercial centers? I live in park city, Utah. When I was a boy growing up in New Jersey, a lift ticket cost $10 for a day at Deer Valley at park city, 150 is not unusual. And so if you want to turn national park campgrounds into commercial operations or a, a concessionaire that wants to see a profitable return, what are the rates going to be like? Is that going to lock people out of going to the national parks? Is it going to commercialize the national parks too much and, and adversely impact the national park experience, which is something that's hard to define these days. And there, there is the rub and that's where you have to have a balance. And I think that that this is going to be a subject of negotiation. Certainly it's the plan has bipartisan support. We'll see where it goes. I don't think anybody wants to turn the national park system into Disneyland, but at the same time, we do have a antiquated park system campgrounds and where's the middle ground there to provide, um, services for the, for everybody while re retaining the nature of the, the campground experience for everybody who wants a more rustic experience plus the, the more RV experience. How much time we got, Brian? Honestly, this is a fascinating topic that perhaps if you guys are willing, because I think the legislation you just said was introduced, can we deep dive into this in a month and see where the legislation is and have a back and forth really between you guys and maybe we can find some other guests who can contribute to the discussion as well? Because I think mm -hmm. it's a really fascinating, interesting, that we're, we're not yeah. going to do it justice in a couple seconds. Agreed. All right, let's plan on that. Right. So thank I'll you guys. Be, I'll be in Kansas. I'll be in Kansas. Oh, but you said you could join. You said you could join mobile if you wanted. Is, is this a good enough discussion to encourage you to join? It's a, it's a great discussion. The question is, how, how good's the reception out in the middle of no place? Flyover. Yes, that be surprisingly good. <laughs> Sometimes there are less people competing for the bandwidth. Let's do this then. Let's say two months from now. When Kurt's back home, so he doesn't have to worry about the internet. And then that gives us plenty of time to research and get some guests together and topics and things like that. Does that work for everybody? <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you. Right. My wall just fell down. <laughs> <laughs> well, 30, 30 seconds too early. We are over. So, 
Yeah, so but but maybe that. but Siri, but really, Shane, maybe we could take a Canadian perspective from this too. Kara, I know you're involved in the RVDA. Maybe there's some ways that we can explore how such a thing might operate in Canada too, and really dive into it in the show. It would be really interesting. All right. We got to wrap up here. Thank you guys. I really appreciate you joining us for another episode of MC Fireside Chats. Phil, as always, from RVDA, Kurt from National Park Travelers, Shane from CRVA, and a bunch of other things. Kara from the Canadian Camping and RV Council, my co host. And of course, Mark and Julie from RV Love, Ben and Michelle from Intentional Adventure. Guys, real quick, chill, share your websites and all the things that where people can find you for RV Love and International, whichever one wants to go first. Yeah, well, we're rvlove.com, and pretty much from there, you can find all of our socials as well. Yeah, we're intentional, intentionaladventure.com and same thing on all the social stuff, Intentional Adventure. Awesome. Thank you guys. Really appreciate all your contributions, discussions. Had a great show and we will see you next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. everyone. Bye. Thanks. Thanks for watching this episode of MC Fireside Chats, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. Have a suggestion for a future show or want to see your campground or company as part of an episode? Email us at hello at moderncampground.com. Join us next week for another episode. And don't miss the latest outdoor hospitality news and commentary from around the world at moderncampground.com.